Welcome to Insight into Ocular Melanoma. Today we're speaking with Jamie Jessen from Impact Genetics. Jamie, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and Impact? Sure. Thank you very much for having me. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone's staying safe and healthy during these crazy times. Um, I am a certified genetic counselor, so I've come from about 15 years of clinical work within the hereditary cancer and the prenatal diagnosis space. And I joined Impact Genetics uh, just over six years ago, where I uh, put on a, a hat of a medical science liaison slash genetic counselor. And I've kind of been focusing um, on so, sort of tumor or what we call somatic genetic testing, becoming sort of specialized in that, as well as uh, counseling and doing testing for other types of hereditary cancer syndromes. So that's sort of my background and, uh, and yeah, that's me. Awesome. So what is genetic testing of an ocular melanoma tumor? What exactly does that mean? Right. It's a very good question. So I think, uh, I think I'd like to just step back. I think just to take a little bit of a refresh, I won't keep everyone long, but I think we need to talk about the importance of really understanding the fact that all cancer is caused by genetic changes. The majority of cancer happens by genetic changes that happen just in the tumor itself. So not something that you get when you're born. It's something that accumulates over time within a cancer cell. And so when you think about our, our, our bodies and the cells in our bodies, we have a set of instructions in each one of our cells and it's packaged into units called DNA. And DNA contains genes and genes are basically the blueprint for our bodies. They keep us healthy. We have 30,000 genes. You get one from your mom and one from your dad. And these genes, every gene has a job to do. And so the genes need to be functioning well to do their jobs. So when you think about cancer, uh, what typically happens in a cancer that happens by chance is that the, the cell will get some damage to the DNA, which, which will contain a gene that's important. We have genes in our bodies that their job is just purely to protect us from getting cancer. You can imagine when a cell begins to die and it needs to replicate itself. I, I always use the phone book analogy because I'm a bit older, but every time a cell needs to replicate itself, it has to generate, let's say, um, 40 phone books worth of information that need to be copied directly the same as the first copy. And so you can imagine that mistakes just generally happen when that process um, occurs. So there are genes that we have that are purely there just to correct mistakes that happen by chance. And these are what we call tumor suppressor genes. So you can imagine if over time, a tumor suppressor gene, one of the copies becomes mutated by mistake. Typically that backup copy will keep the cell protected, but you know, sometimes it's just a matter of time before the other copy gets a mistake in it. Now there's nothing protecting us. So the accumulation of the genetic mistakes that just happen by chance don't have a stop. So nothing's protecting us. And by accumulating mistakes in other genes that help protect us from cancer, that's when a cell can become cancer. So when we talk about genetic testing of ocular melanoma tumors is we're looking to see which genetic mistakes have accumulated in those cancer cells, because the thought is the more accumulation of mistakes, 
might mean that it would have it's it's further along. It might give it some it might give itself a, a greater ability to what we call metastasize or spread. So when we're looking at genetic changes in the tumor, what we're doing is we're looking for genetic alterations that typically are just acquired by chance, and we're measuring them. So, you know, in terms of how that's measured, the the impact genetic test will look at actual chromosome number changes. So chromosomes are the units that contain all the DNA. And you're looking to see if there's any missing or extra chromosome pieces that are just in the tumor cells. It's things like the Castle test, for example, what they're doing is they're measuring the products of genes that we know can be damaged in the uveomelanoma cells. So you can imagine if, if you're seeing that uh, the cell is not producing not expressing things that it should, you would infer the fact that, well, the genes are damaged. Something's going on with the, the structure of the gene. Or it's been damaged. It's accumulated a mistake because it's not expressing what it should. So genetic testing of the tumor, whether it's using the gene expression profiling, which is what the cathode test does, or the impact genetic test, or the University of Pennsylvania test, that's measuring actual DNA changes it's all really just looking to see how many mistakes or mutations have accumulated in that cell. And that infers what the risk of that, uh, what that original cancer cell will have to metastasize. And if we think about hereditary syndromes, and I'm gonna bring this up just because a lot of great questions have come up with patients asking about, well, what does it mean for my family? What does this mean if it's genetic? Genetic does not necessarily mean inherited. So this is, the, this is the difference between something like an Angelina Jolie, for example. She has a, a working copy of the breast cancer gene and the breast cancer genes are good genes. They are protective genes. Typically we have two working copies, but sometimes people are actually born with a mistake in one of the copies of their genes that protect them from cancer because they inherited it from a parent. So it's not to say those people will definitely get cancer, but if they lose the other copy just by chance, they don't have that backup copy. So that's when we can see people sort of presenting with cancer at earlier ages or lots of different members of the family having a similar type of cancer. So the hereditary cancers are different than what we would call the by chance or somatic cancers. They're all consisting of genetic changes. But when we talk about blood tests, those are the tests that we're looking for, genetic predisposition syndrome. So that's something you inherit that gives you a higher risk to get certain types of cancers. And depending on which gene that is, some can be risk, can impose risk for other parts of your body. So for example, the breast cancer genes. If you have a mistake in one of the copies of your breast cancer gene, women have a risk for breast, ovarian, and can give you also risk for pancreatic cancer. Men who have mutations in those genes, they have a risk for breast cancer as well, but they have a higher risk for prostate cancer. Whereas some people have a mutation that they inherit in a different gene, the BAP1 gene, for example. People that inherit one working copy and one non-working copy, those people have a higher risk for things like uveomelanoma, kidney cancer, and skin cancer. So it really just depends on which gene you have the mutation in that predisposes you to certain types of cancer. But regardless, when you look at that cancer cell under the microscope, even if you had a genetic mutation to start, it's accumulated lots of different mutations because it has been out of control. So that's, that's what I wanted to just sort of start with because a lot of good questions sort of begin with those questions. 
And so that's, that's typically what your genetic testing is going to be doing, taking a piece of that tumor and just analyzing what's the genetic damage in this tumor cell. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. That is so helpful. It, it always is good to get a, to get a refresher and um, so many people just, it's not been explained that way before. Um, so when you, when you look at genetic testing, what exactly is it telling you? So I guess if, if, when you're looking, when you're doing genetic testing, what it's telling you is it's telling you whether that cell has a normal working genome that's keeping us protected or does it not? So for example, one of the, one of the main things we look for in uveomelanoma tumor samples, and one thing to keep in mind is while we think of uveomelanoma, we, we consider it somewhat of a simpler cancer than, for example, a breast cancer or a cutaneous melanoma, where they don't have hundreds of different changes or chromosomes that are missing or extra. Like if you look at a breast cancer, for example, that's well advanced and you look under the microscope, there's going to be lots of chromo big chromosomes that are missing, lots of extra, some that have switched around because it's accumulated damage. But uveomelanoma typically doesn't have all of those changes. One of the things that we typically can see is whether chromosome three is missing. Is there one copy or two copies? Two copies is what we would call disomy, die for two. Monosomy three would be there's one. So we know that by looking at the, at the chromosomes and looking to see if they are actually there, if there's extra or missing, <clears throat> that's what we're actually looking for in the test. Understand that makes perfect sense. So when you, you do an impact test, what exactly does impact test for? What are the variants that you look for that can tell a patient about their tumor? Right. So what we'll start with is we're going to start with looking at the chromosome numbers. We're going to be looking to see if there is any extra or missing information that comes from chromosome 1, 3, 6, and 8. At the moment, chromosome one and eight, excuse me, chromosome three and eight are the ones that really seem to be the big culprits and can infer increased risk. So if we do a genetic test on your tumor and we see that there's only one copy of chromosome three, we will report that as monosomy three, meaning there's one copy missing. We will also report any of the other changes in the chromosomes. But three and eight are important because of the fact that we use those in what we call an algorithm. So we know that from some of the literature that the genetic status of the tumor can be very powerful in knowing whether that person might experience it, a metastasis or not. However, we know that genetics doesn't trump everything. So we also want to include the fact that Okay, so what is the genetic component of the tumor? Is it high risk or low risk that it might spread? Okay, well, how big is the tumor? Is the tumor very large or is it very small? How old is the patient? Because, you know, if you think about calculating what your risk is or what your chances of being alive and well in five or 10 years from now, that number is going to be different if you're 40 or if you're 70, just because we're human beings with aging. So, Taking the genetic components of the tumor, we put those into the algorithm that was created um, in part by Dr. Bertel D'Amato called the LUMPO tool. And anyone can use this tool. This is available online. It's free. And we enter in the patient's age, 
um, whether they're male or female, we enter in how big the tumor is, and then we put in the components of the genetics. So whether chromosome three is normal, and if chromosome eight is normal. And all of those things are put together to calculate what that patient's individual survivorship prediction is. So that means what are the chances? And again, this is not a perfect science. There are going to be people in that group that never get a metastasis. And the calculated risk is going to tell you what is my chance that I'm going to be alive in three, five, and 10 years from now. And then we even tease it down to say, okay, the chances of you passing away, for example, might be a higher percentage. You might pass away from natural causes than you would from metastasis. So we combine those together to give you what's your overall survivorship. So if, let's say in a patient that is 60 does the test and the genetic tests tell them that they might have a higher risk tumor. And they're going to say in 10 years, the chances that you might develop metastasis might be 13% and you might pass from metastasis, but your risk that you might pass away just because you're older is, is let's say 15%. So the overall survivorship risk will be, the survivorship prediction would be 75%. You'll be alive and well in 10 years, but there's a 25% chance you might pass. A portion of that is just because you're human and older and not die from metastasis, but the portion that is due to metastasis is reported. So that's sort of the first step if, if we do the chromosome test and all the chromosomes look normal in the tumor, that's telling us that's, that looks good. That looks like a low risk tumor. The next step that we do is that we know that, you know, when these doctors are extremely skilled in doing these biopsies, we know that there is normal tissue that, that is in those biopsies. That's right sort of beside the tumor that can get all mixed in. So we wanna be sure that we're reporting, uh, and your normal cells will have normal amounts of chromosomes because they're not cancer cells. So if you think about taking a piece, we wanna be sure, is this good news representative of a tumor? And so the next step is doing actually individual um, gene mutation analysis. So there's four genes that we would look at, GNAQ, GNA11, SF3B1, and EIF1AX. Those are four genes that tend to be mutated in uveomelanoma cells. So keep in mind, if you looked at a breast cancer cell or a colon cell, they might have 20 or 30 genes that have mutations in them. Uveomelanoma is very specific. So if we see a normal result of the chromosomes, we, we then go and check those genes. If there's a mutation in one of those genes, we can say, yep, this is a tumor cell because normal cells won't have mutations in those individual genes. A lot of those individual gene mutations don't necessarily have a lot of prognostic information, unfortunately. I know there's a lot of work that's being done on that. These tumor cells that have these individual gene mutations, and I would describe a gene mutation, let's say it's a, it's a paragraph in that book, and you're looking to see if there's one mistake, one letter that's different than it should be in that paragraph. Those mutations can infer some extra risk, even if the chromosomes, and the, I would call the chromosomes like the books are normal. So the tumor confirmation is helpful. It's not to say that if you have normal chromosomes and none of those genes have mutations in them, it could still be a uveal melanoma tumor because they don't all have them, about 90% do. Then we'll say that in the report, that this could be representative of a normal tissue but when we are able to confirm that it is representative of tumor, that just sort of gives the physician an extra uh, peace of mind. 
And, and most, again, are very skilled and will always get tumor. However, that's the second step that we do to try to confirm that. Okay, so you do this, you do the testing and you're going to give the patient results. You send the results to the doctor. What can they expect in their testing results? What is it that they get? Right. So the test results take about three to six weeks to, to complete. So that's what we do is we will accept the sample from the doctor and we will take the DNA out of that tumor and we're, and we're gonna hold it. Because typically what we'll do is we'll attempt some pre-authorization insurance work beforehand so that patients know if they might be any, potentially out of pocket for any of this test. So typically LabCorp is the one that provides that for us. So they'll go ahead and contact insurance. Sometimes patients don't have any out-of-pocket pay. Sometimes the individual plan will say no. Um, so then if it's, if it's something that's expected to be over $300 in out-of-pocket pay, the patients get a call and say, hey, listen, this is, this is what we're expecting to get back. It may not be exactly this, but you might be out of pocket a little bit of money. And uh, they have the right to then say, go ahead or you know what, I'm not sure right now, and we'll just hold it for as long as they need, or they can cancel the test. So once we proceed with that, the report is going, it's quite a long, some of, some of, some of our feedbacks is our reports are much too long. However, the main focus is the first page. That's going to tell you the status of chromosomes 1, 3, 6, and 8. And if we had to do genetic testing to confirm that the tumor was actually tumor, the results from that genetic test will also be on the report. And then below that is going to be the calculated individual survivorship prediction for that patient at three, five, and 10 years down the road. And so the patient has the option, of course, to speak with their own physicians about those results. However, some of our doctors gave us some feedback many years ago that you know, patients are really stressed. They, it's, it's very stressful to have to wait to hear what, what are my results? What are my chances? So we developed um, sort of a first of its kind. This is where I put my genetic counseling hat back on for people that do the impact test. They can call uh, and book an appointment with a certified genetic counselor that's been trained in this specific test to talk about what the results showed, what the survivorship prediction is for them, what, what, it, what was tested, what wasn't able to be tested, um, and also talk to you a little bit about how you're doing. How has this process been? Because I know that many patients, it's almost post-traumatic stress syndrome. When you finish the process, my goodness, you never knew this was even a possibility to get this cancer. And then you're, you're, you're swifted way to a, an operating room and have lots of very difficult tests. And your home recovering, and I think most people are, are, are just confused what, what even happened. So we give the opportunity for patients to ask some detailed questions. We go through it. We don't give any management. The, the management, how you're covered, where you'll go from there, whether your results might include you into a clinical trial that's specific to those mutations, that we leave that up to your doctors and your oncologists because that's their specialty. But we want to explain this to you because it's complicated so that when you go to see your doctor for your follow-up, you can spend that time with them doing what they are best at. And that's to see if your eye is healing, whether you need any future surveillance, put you into a plan, but your genetic test results are reviewed with you over the phone and that's free of charge. So that's been a really nice piece of um, 
I think just it's just sort of a, a human thing to be able to talk to, to somebody that knows a little bit more about it and walk you through it. And you're at home, so you can sort of take your time. I think that's great because so many patients have questions about their genetic testing and they yeah. don't understand their report. So being able to talk to somebody, it does help to, to alleviate some stress, just talking to a person about it instead of just reading it on a piece of paper that you have no idea what this means. Yeah. And yeah. It's, very, it's very scary when you read that because you don't know. And then you're looking at your percentage of metastasis and then that spins you off in a whole nother direction. So it is really exciting that you have someone that they can talk to personally and um, kind of walk them through some of it. I think that'll help their nerves a lot. Oh, good. Yeah, we did a, we did a, a little pilot study before we, we even thought of this and thought, does it really help or does it not? And, you know, we, we found that even the patients that had some news that, you know, wasn't, wasn't as good as they hoped, you know, perhaps their risk is higher than they expected. Um, a lot of our patients were then reporting to that us, regardless of whether it was good news or bad news, the uncertainty, relieving the uncertainty for them was much more important. So they could sort of take a deep breath, put their ducks in a row, you know, think about their future, talk with their spouse, their family, their friends. And it was something that, you know, I know bad news is never easy, but at the same time, I think we found that the patients are really thankful to be able to talk this through. And, and I would say if patients have done, and unfortunately we, we only offer this for the impact genetic test because our survivorship predictions are different. They're calculated differently than the CASEL test is. It's not sort of a class. It's not given to a good or bad. It's more of um, this is the risk. It's up to you really and your doctor to decide, does that, does that feel like a high risk? Does it feel like a low enough risk for surveillance? Um, but anyone that's had a test, if they, even if they want to go back, if they want to book an appointment to talk with one of our counselors about the results of their test, we, we, that's available to them, even if it was years ago. Because sometimes it helps to know, you know, it, it, if you can walk through it again. Um, and the algorithm has changed, you know, in terms of five years ago, we only looked at what chromosome three told us, but now we know chromosome eight's important too. So now that's part of the calculation. So chromosome eight can have a piece of extra material on it. And we're learning that those pieces can also infer some extra risk. So I would encourage anyone just to, to reach out that I can give you that information, Melody. And I, I think it's um, something that's always available for patients. Well, that's exciting. Cause I know when you're first diagnosed and you first get your genetic testing results, you're, you're in a different space once you've mm -hmm. had a chance to kind of get past the initial diagnosis and then you can go back and you can look at things your head's a little bit more clear so mm -hmm. it, I think it would be good for most patients to relook at that just to kind of get there to make sure that they understood what they heard um, mm -hmm. because they we're in such a stressful time like you said kind of PS um PTSD <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah so it is it it I know um we hear from patients all the time. I don't remember what my doctor told me because I was just so stressed out. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think that's a, that's a great service to offer. Um, you mentioned that LabCorp does, um, you, you go through LabCorp to do the testing, your, your uh, division of LabCorp. That's um, correct. Are you, is, there's been some confusion. Is IMPACT certified in the U.S.? Yes, we are. So we're so the molecular certification board is what we would call CAPCLIA. 
So when you look at molecular genetics labs, um, that is the governing body. So that would be sort of the equivalent of an FDA for sort of pharmaceuticals and drugs. CAPCLIA certification, we're also uh, associated with the European certification. Uh, we're also certified in New York. So we, we have the probably the most certifications that you can get for this type of testing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So when you're looking at the, um, at the testing and you're looking at the rate of metastasis determined um, on the genetic, genetic um, testing, you also have BAP1 and you, you do test for BAP1, is that correct? We don't test directly for BAP1. So BAP1, the gene BAP1 is on chromosome three. Okay. So if you can imagine, if you're missing a copy of chromosome three, you're also missing one of the BAP1 genes. Okay. So you can imagine that if you were to measure the product of BAP1, um, it would be less than expected. It would be a, it would be a BAP1 tumor because you've lost a copy because you've lost chromosome three. And the question's always been, what comes first, chicken or the egg, right? Is it losing the chromosome and then the BAP1 becomes a problem that's left over? Or is it the chromosome, or is it the BAP1 change that made the chromosome disappear? Uh, again, it's, it's not something we test for directly, but we know that if chromosome three is missing, BAP1 is missing. So it's a, it's a high risk tumor, just like a BAP1 would be. So I know that you've done some work and this is not something that um, IMPACT does, but where, where are we at identifying a gene through blood work that might help Mm -hmm. um, know if we have circulating tumor cells. Uh, is that far away or are we fairly close with that? You know, I don't, I don't, I know there's lots of really good work. We've been, we've also been working with some institutions to try to see if that can help. So, so the blood, the blood test that we call uh, circulating tumor DNA. So you can imagine when you have a, a tumor in your body, it, it's, it's, it's recreating itself, it's losing its cells, the cells are opening up and spilling their DNA all into your bloodstream. But typically, when you look at taking a sample of blood from someone, less than 0.1% of the DNA in the blood that we get is going to be tumor DNA. So it's really difficult to isolate it. And especially with uveal melanoma tumors, they're, so, they're quite small, typically, in comparison to the rest of your body. Not like a big cancer cell in your colon, for example, or in your lungs. Um, lungs. Lungs typically tend to shed a lot of tumor DNA into the blood, and so that isolation process is being very successful in the lung cancer. Unfortunately, we haven't really been successful. And again, I only speak to a little bit of work we started with, but I know there's some that are really exploring, is there any circulating tumor DNA in the blood? So rather than taking a piece of the tumor, can we just take a sample? Same with um, the way they do for now prenatal testing to check and see if your baby has Down syndrome. Now they just take a blood sample from the mom and they isolate the DNA that's floating around from the baby and they can check the baby that way. But unfortunately, just the, the levels of DNA that get in the blood are quite low. So I think, we're, I think that's the gold standard. That would be the best way. And we know that you know, if patients get to the stage where they might be experiencing liver metastasis, for example, unfortunately, sometimes we can find the circulating DNA in the blood that's from the tumor 
but typically I think it's been a struggle because the tumors had it quite big by the time we can actually detect anything. And so what's, is it, is it better than imaging it? Not at the moment, I don't think. Okay, that will, that's good to know that. Um, when you have, you're looking at an ocular melanoma tumor and you get, you get some mutation and it develops different variants of your mutation. What, what is it that causes this to keep happening? Do we, do we know, um, other than just a natural occurrence of cell replication, is there, once a cell mutates, then does it open it up to different variations of mutations? Is it kind of like a, um, like a cause and effect that we keep getting more, or is this just something that just happens so naturally? Yeah, it's a, it's a good, I think that's, that's probably the main question that most oncologists would have, but I think I describe it kind of as like a cascade, right? So when you, when you get your first hit, let's say a first DNA damage, um, that, that damage, that DNA might be really important for what we call, they call things like driver mutations. You may hear a lot in the literature. So the driver mutation is, which is the one that happened first? And, and that one sort of drives the mutation uh, accumulation of other genes, the longer it's allowed to do that. And because the cell isn't being corrected like it should, because that driver mutation may be important for that correction process, that's when you're going to be accumulating more mutation. Lots of new tests for, for tumor cells, not necessarily for uveal melanoma, will measure what they call a tumor mutation burden. So they're measuring how many mutations does this cancer cell have? Is it thousands or is it hundreds? Because you can imagine if it's thousands, you're thinking this might be a more advanced tumor or maybe this tumor, because it's so wrong, it's so wrong genetically, that's when maybe immunotherapy could be helpful because it's going to recognize it a lot better because it's just so, so different than the rest of the cells in your body. Okay. So I think it's a natural process. Just because you get a driver mutation though, or just again, or if you have an inherited predisposition mutation, doesn't mean that you're, that that's gonna go into cancer, but once it starts, it can sort of branch off into different ways. So if the driver starts it, it could go one way. Uh, if, it, if it starts it, it could go another way and down a different pathway. And that's because these genes all work together. Thank you so much for that. Really quick before we before we sign off, can you tell us anything about the SF3B1 mutation? I know that's being talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, you know, I think it was 2016. Um, people were were curious to know, you know, these genetic mutations we look for really just to confirm if it's tumor or not. They actually saw that there were patients that had. So normal chromosomes in the tumor cell. So all, all the chromosomes look normal. So I'd say that would probably be considered like a class, like a class one equivalent, right? Low risk. But they had a mutation in SF3B1 as well. And typically you would say, okay, great, that just that confirms its tumor. But they were noticing that these people with, with normal, healthy tumor cells with low risk that also had this specific mutation had a, a, a bit of an increased risk for metastasis long-term. So about eight and a half years later. 
experiencing metastasis where I think most patients, when they think about when am I going to get metastasis if I do, a lot of times I think the doctors are saying that three to five years sort of is where they'd expect it. And then you kind of might take a deep, not a deep breath. You're not out of the woods, of course, but they found that patients that had the SF3B1 mutation with normal chromosomes, low-risk cells, had a risk for long-term metastasis. So we actually, if we're going to check the tumor to make sure if the chromosomes are normal, we want to check the tumor to confirm it is tumor. We'll start with SF3B1 to see, because if it's, if it's mutated, that's great. We know it's tumor, but then it also, it gives us, it gives information about that long-term metastasis risk. So I think the doctors would take that to account and say, you know, maybe a, a good prognosis patient without a mutation in that gene, um, we may not continue to screen you as, as thoroughly down the road, but this is something that I think they're taking into account now. Great, that's great to hear that. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to go over this with us. I know the patients will find this extremely helpful. Oh, and good. We hope to see you at our patient conference and um, learn more as IMPACT finds more information about ocular melanoma genetics. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Oh, thank you. We really appreciate you guys too. And stay safe, everyone.